0: This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Julian, Lydia, Stephen, Caleb F., Sam M., Emmeline, Tim, and Caleb J. And if that sounds like a lot of names for one episode, it is... But I'm trying to make up for the fact that last week, I dropped the ball and did not have a new episode. So we're doing something special in this episode, but I'm going to tell you what it is a little bit later. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. The first question comes from Julian, who asks... Has the Bible changed recently, in other words, in the last hundred years? If so, does this mean that the Bible isn't credible or isn't God's Word? Great question, Julian. Remember, when we talk about the history of the Bible, we need to distinguish between two aspects. First, there's the manuscripts that God inspired. In other words, the original scrolls, what scholars call the autographer. On the other hand, there are many, many copies of those manuscripts that were made over the course of the years. So, we're going to keep those two things separate, the originals and the copies. Now, we don't have the originals. For example, we don't have an original scroll that arrived at the church in Corinth that contained a letter from the Apostle Paul. Instead, what we have is an incredible number of copies of that letter. In fact, more copies than for any other book in the ancient world. The manuscript evidence in terms of the copies of the Bible is huge. There is simply no other book in the ancient world that exists in more copies than the Bible does. Now, when it comes to inspiration, we always make the point that God inspired the original documents, not the copies. So it's possible when you look at all of those different copies to find that some of them will contain errors in them. Many of the copies are only partial copies, they don't include the entire text of the Bible, and sometimes the text that they include is fragmentary, or has errors of spelling, for example, in the copy. But when you compare all of the copies that exist, you can see what they all agree on, and you can weed out any of those minor differences. Now, because of that, we have an extraordinarily accurate text for the Bible. There is no other ancient book that we can speak of in this high degree of textual accuracy. But, having said that, our understanding of that text can improve over time by comparing all of the copies that we have, and, of course, by finding new copies. Now, with all of this in mind, the answer to your question is no, the Bible hasn't changed. God's Word is the same today as it was from the beginning. Two things have changed, however. First of all, our understanding of the original has improved over time a little bit thanks to discovering more copies to compare. Secondly, another big change, there are many new translations of the Bible that have appeared. Some of those translations are more on the literal side, some are more on the figurative side, some are better, some are worse. When you see all of those different translations, it's easy to think, wow, it seems as if the Bible has changed. But, If we compare all those translations to the underlying Hebrew and Greek texts, we can maintain a solid understanding of what the Bible teaches, down to the tiniest details. And the good news is, all of this interpretive work is documented. So it's something that whenever you have questions, you can actually study this for yourself and you can see the evidence. You don't have to take anyone's word for it. You can actually see for yourself that the Bible is true and reliable. Our next question comes from Lydia, who asks, Why didn't God just say that we can go to heaven instead of Jesus dying on the cross? Well, Lydia, whenever I find myself asking a question like, why did God do things in this particular way? I always start by reminding myself that God always has a reason. It's a safe assumption that if God does something in a certain way, then that thing needs to be done in the way that God does it. Now, in the case of human salvation, Jesus dies on the cross because it needs to be done. Now, the question is, why? Well, Jesus dies to atone or to pay the penalty for human sin. For us to live in the presence of God, that problem of sin has to be dealt with, not just ignored. God is holy, which means that by his very nature, he would never just ignore sin as if it was no big deal. So God didn't just say, you've all sinned, but hey, I'll just ignore that and say that you can be with me anyway. Because that wouldn't have solved the problem of sin. It it would have just ignored it. So God did something much, much harder. He sent Jesus to become one of us and to die for us, to pay the price of sin. And the fact that he did this shows how much he loves us. That's the point Jesus is making in that famous verse, John 3.16, where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now it's time for the big question, and as a special treat to make up for missing an episode last week, this week's big question is actually four questions in one, all having to do with Palm Sunday. Our big questions come from Stephen, Caleb F., Sam M., and Emmeline. So let's give them all a round of applause. Now, here are the questions. First, Stephen asks, Why do we do Palm Sunday? Then, Caleb F. asks, Why would the people put branches and cloaks in the road in front of Jesus? And then Sam M. asks, if Jesus had silenced the crowds in Jerusalem, would the stones really have cried out? And finally, Emmeline wants to know, did the people ever get their cloaks back? Well, let's start at the beginning. The reason we celebrate Palm Sunday, Stephen, is that it reminds us of an important moment in the life of Jesus when he entered the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, and was hailed as king. This matters because the Messiah, the the anointed one, was prophesied to be a king like David, to sit on the throne of David, in the city of David. And the triumphal entry was an acknowledgment that Jesus was that Messiah. Now the same logic applies to our commemoration of the crucifixion on Good Friday and of the resurrection on Easter. We celebrate Jesus' work every Sunday in church, but we set aside these anniversaries in particular as a reminder of everything that Jesus has done and continues to do so that we can have life. Caleb F.'s question about putting cloaks and branches in the road raises an interesting cultural point. There's a story about Queen Elizabeth I of England that might help. According to the story, the queen was walking along the road one day and encountered a puddle of mud. Before she could walk through the mud and get her shoes dirty, one of her courtiers threw his cloak over the puddle so that the queen could cross without getting muddy. The idea was this, that the queen's foot was more precious than the courtier's cloak. Out of honor for her, he would rather ruin his cloak than let her shoe touch the mud. Now, I'm not saying that people threw palm branches and cloaks into the road for Jesus because it was muddy. The point is they did it to honor him. This was the Messiah, the the king that had been promised by God, and the people were determined to honor him as he entered the city of David. And the best way to do that was to line the road with their cloaks and the branches so that he had a special path to follow. Have you ever heard the expression, roll out the red carpet? Well, the red carpet literally is a path of honor for people to walk along as they enter. Today, you might see celebrities arriving at an event, getting out of their limousines, and then entering the building down a special red carpet. And this is a way of honoring a special guest. Because of that, whenever we want to show someone hospitality and make them feel especially welcome, we say that we're rolling out the red carpet for them. That's basically what the people of Jerusalem did for Jesus. It was a way to welcome him with honor. Which brings us to Sam M's question. The people did more to honor Jesus than just throwing out cloaks and branches. They sang hosannas to him. In Luke's gospel, the Pharisees tell Jesus to stop the people from doing this. Now, their reasoning was pretty simple. The people in singing Hosannas were worshiping Jesus. They're not just honoring him, but they're honoring him as the Son of God. The Pharisees think this is idolatry. So they tell Jesus to silence the people, thinking that if he doesn't, then he'll be in trouble for blasphemy, since you're only supposed to worship God. Jesus says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Basically, the people are honoring their Messiah, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom all things were made, the Redeemer of humanity. All creation has been waiting for this moment. In Romans 1, Paul says all creation longs for freedom from the yoke of sin. Jesus tells the Pharisees essentially that on this day of all days, As the Messiah enters the city of David, he is going to be praised. And if the human beings don't do it, well, creation won't stand for silence. The very stones, the most unlikely thing to choose because stones can't speak, the stones will cry out. Does he really mean it? Honestly, I think he does. In fact, I do a lecture about this very question at Worldview Academy called What Made Dagon Bow? I think that if you take Jesus seriously and reflect on what his words mean about creation, then you will see the whole world in a different light. Finally, Emmeline wonders whether the people got their cloaks back afterward. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us one way or the other, but I'd like to think that everyone received back their property after the triumphal entry. I imagine they cherished those dirty cloaks from that time on for the rest of their lives. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Tim wants to know, were there people between the Old and New Testaments? Yes, Tim, there absolutely were. The Old Testament ends approximately 400 years before the beginning of the New Testament, And a lot of people lived during those centuries between the two. I'll give you a handful of famous examples, people you might have heard of. Alexander the Great, Plato and Socrates, Julius Caesar and Cleopatra all lived in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The genealogies in the New Testament also record people who lived during those in-between years. And now Caleb J. wants to know, who did you pick to win your bracket? Um, hmm, that's a great question, Caleb. As you can imagine, I spend a lot of time thinking about my uh, bracket each season, trying to decide exactly who I should uh, pick to win. I wasn't sure this year, and I really went back and forth, but eventually I decided to pick Jesus. That may sound like a Sunday school answer, but I guess I'm just a Sunday school kind of guy. Whenever in doubt, when it comes to brackets, I'm in a lot of doubt. Just pick Jesus, and you'll do all right. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.